pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the testimony that Tom shared with us, just reminding us of your power to change our lives. You call us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You show us that it's nothing that we can do to earn your approval. It's all of what Christ himself has done through his death and resurrection. You open our eyes to see that we need Jesus, and you bring us to him by your grace. And so we give you thanks. Many of us here have experienced that and can thank you for that. I pray for anyone who is here who has never experienced your grace yet, and that even today they might be changed, they might be transformed by the supernatural work of regeneration, being born again to a living hope because of your great mercy and grace toward us. So would you do that? And Lord, it's a grace from you that we have a Bible that you have done for many of us what you did for the Thessalonian believers. You convince them it's not just the word of man, but what it really is is the word of God, which works effectually in those who believe. And so I pray you would work effectually in our hearts this morning, that we would be transformed by what we hear. Cause us to see what we need to see. Cause us to hear what we need to hear. Cause our hearts to be tender and teachable and responsive. Lord, only you can do those things. And we ask your Holy Spirit to work in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. When we sing, speak, O Lord, we are assuming that God is both willing and able to speak to us in ways we can understand. But how does God communicate with us? Our text for today tells us two of the main ways that God speaks. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 19 as we continue our study of summer psalms. Psalm 19. We'll start with the first six verses, which tell us that God speaks through his creation. Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through the, all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. In them, the heavens, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Did you notice all the words expressing the idea of communicating 
in those verses, telling, declaring, proclaiming, pouring out speech, revealing knowledge, utterance, all pointing to the truth that God is sending a message that is accessible to all people in all places. Every day and every night, the unimaginably vast distances of space, the uncountable number of stars, the clockwork precision of the movements of the heavens, the sheer beauty of sunsets and spiral galaxies and the northern lights are all saying loud and clear, there is a great and powerful and glorious God who made all of this. A few months ago, there was an article posted on Desiring God by Kevin Hartnett, who worked extensively with the Hubble telescope. It was titled, The Cosmos Keeps Preaching, My Faith After 40 Years at NASA. And I encourage you to look it up yourself. It's got some great pictures of our universe. But here's what Dr. Hartnett says. He quotes Psalm 19, just like we just read. And then he says, the complexity, size, power, and grandeur of the universe are God's intentional gifts to us. They are meant to help us understand what he is like, to lovingly help us apprehend our maker as the unsearchable ultimate reality that he is. Indeed, the heavens are declaring at this very moment that our God is magnificent beyond comprehension. Many glorious attributes of God are loudly and profoundly declared to us every night from diverse space telescopes and ground observatories all around the world. Among the qualities demonstrably proclaimed are his intellectual genius, his endless creativity, his eternal power, his exquisite, beautiful, and purposeful craftsmanship, and his divine nature. And then he directs us to go to Romans 1.20, which says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So God has made himself known through his creation. And the evidence is so clear that there's no valid excuse for anyone denying that he exists or claiming they didn't know he was there. The next verse even tells us there's no excuse for anyone failing to give him the honor and thanks that is due him as the great creator that he is. But our knowledge of God would be very incomplete if all we had to go on was observing his awesome works in creation. For example, you could study a painting by Rembrandt and know something about him. You could observe his skill and admire his ability as an artist, but you really wouldn't know Rembrandt very well. But if you could find his letters and journals and some other sources that would help you discover what he thinks and what he cares about and a lot of other information about his life, you would know Rembrandt much better. And in a similar way, we can learn some true things about God from creation. We can know he is all-powerful and all-wise and eternal. But we would still be lacking a lot of information about what he is like and what he thinks about us 
and a host of other things that would be important to know. And so the next section of Psalm 19 tells us that the same God who speaks through his creation also speaks through his word. So back in Psalm 19, let's read 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Maybe you noticed a pattern in those verses. There's a synonym for the word of God, and there's some nuances, but... And overlap is just, just say the word of God, the Bible. And then there's a characteristic of the word and then a benefit or a blessing of the word. So let's walk through these phrases looking at what is true of the word of God as well as what his word does in us or for us. So verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Law is not just used in a legal sense but is a word meaning teaching, instruction, or doctrine. And we are told that God's word is perfect, which means flawless or complete or not missing anything that is needed, which means the Bible never needs to be added to or improved. It's perfect just the way it is. And we're told God's word has the power to restore the soul. Restore means to renew, to bring back to a good condition, to give new life. And God's word restores in two ways. One, by giving us spiritual life in the first place. That's why some of our Bibles read converting the soul. It's speaking of the miracle of regeneration, of bringing a spiritually dead person to life. A few months ago, an unbeliever visited our worship service, and I was just so encouraged by the warm welcome that a number of women gave to her, as well as one of the sisters gave her a Bible and encouraged her to read the Gospel of John. And it reminded me, that whole scenario reminded me of a story that John MacArthur tells of the time a Jewish abortion doctor came to visit him. So let me just read an account of that unlikely visit. <laughs> so this guy comes in and says, um, I know I'm doomed to hell because of what I've done. And earlier he had admitted, um, I kill babies for a living. <laughs> he knew that. So he says, I know I'm doomed to hell because of that. I'm absolutely miserable and unhappy. I can't stand the guilt of all of this. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And MacArthur said, no, I can't help you, but I know someone who can help you, Jesus Christ. He said, sadly, but I don't know who he is. I've been taught all my life not to believe in him. I said, would you like to know who Jesus Christ is? He said, I would if he can help me. Here's what I want you to do. 
I reached over and took a Bible off my desk and opened it to the Gospel of John. I said, I want you to take this book home and read this part called the Gospel of John. I want you to keep reading until you know who Jesus Christ is and then call me again. The next Friday, I received a call. The doctor wanted to see me again. He came into my office, sat down on the couch, and said, I know who he is. You do? Yes, I do. Who is he? I asked. I'll tell you one thing. He's not just a man. Really? Who is he? He's God, he said with finality. You, a Jew, are telling me that Jesus Christ is God? How do you know that? He said, it's clear. It's right there in the Gospel of John. What convinced you, I asked. Look at the words he said and look at the things he did. No one could say and do those things unless he was God. He was echoing the Apostle John's thought perfectly. Do you know what else he did? He rose from the dead. They buried him, and three days later, he came back from the dead. That proves he is God, doesn't it? God himself came into this world. I asked him, do you know why he came? Yes. He came to die for my sin. God's word did a miracle in his heart. And whether it was the Gospel of John or the Romans Road or some other text, if you are a believer this morning, you were brought to spiritual life through the Word of God. That's what 1 Peter 1.23 says. Peter says, For you have been born again. New life. Spiritually dead. Now spiritually alive. How? Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. So that's why Hebrews says the word of God is living and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword. It's powerful enough to take a Jewish abortion doctor and change his life. So that he knows who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and give forgiveness for even the guilt of killing babies. Well, after we come to Christ, our souls often get weary and dry and depleted. They need fresh life and vitality. And the word of God restores or revives the soul. God uses his word as a means of refreshing our souls and bringing them back to a good, healthy place. So Psalm 119, which is just sort of the Psalm 19 on steroids, 176 verses of treating the word of God. So I encourage you to read that on your own. But here's some verses from Psalm 119, verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. So I, I, I'm stuck in the dirt, basically. I'm so downcast. So give me fresh life and energy and vitality through your word. It's how it's going to come. Or Psalm 119, verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. How do we keep from just getting so 
discouraged in the middle of affliction, God's word can revive us. Back in Psalm 19, the second part of verse 7 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So God's word is sure. It is a solid foundation we can count on. It is a fixed, dependable point of reference that cannot fall. Joshua 23.14 says, You know in all your hearts and all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed or fallen to the ground. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. So we can count on God's word to be true every time. And God's word can make the simple wise. Now, simple has a different flavor in the book of Proverbs, but in the Psalms it usually means humble and teachable as opposed to proud and close-minded. And wise is the idea of skillful in the art of living. The whole Bible is full of practical wisdom about marriage and parenting and money and a host of other subjects. It provides the wisdom we need to navigate life in this world. Psalm 119, verse 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So if you need direction, you need guidance, you need clarity in how to think about something, it's in the word. So go to the word. Verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart. So God's word are right, we're literally straight. They won't lead us astray. They always give us the right perspective on everything. We don't want to just go by what seems right in our own eyes. Our hearts are deceitful <laughs> above all things. We don't know. There's a proverb that says, don't trust your own heart. And we don't want to sure go by our culture. Our culture is very confused. So we don't go by what they say is okay. We want to go by what God says. David says, therefore I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. Whatever God says about anything and everything is right. And so that's where we want to go. And they rejoice the heart. God's word produces and rekindles joy. And many of us had the experience, you come into a quiet time, maybe discouraged, kind of down, kind of in a bad mood. And there's just something that you read, and your, your spirit just starts being encouraged, even cheered up. It's because God's word rejoices the heart. The second half of verse 8 says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Pure means unmixed with error or untainted by any corruption. Psalm 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace, refined seven times. And enlightening the eyes means enabling us to see and comprehend truth, the word of God sheds light on reality that we can't and won't see by ourselves. 
For example, it helps us dis discern the difference between what is good and what is best. It helps us see the difference between what is only temporary and what is eternal. It helps us discern the difference between what is urgent and what is ultimately important. And I just thought of Luke 10 as an example of that. You remember the story, Jesus is visiting Bethany, he's staying at the home of Mary and Martha, and Martha's all tizzed out about her preparations, and she confronts Jesus, says, tell my sister to come out here and help in the kitchen, and this is what Jesus says. So there, that's urgent. That's like, right now, I need this, Jesus. Get my sister in here to help in the kitchen. That's what I need urgently. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And we all need that reminder. We can get worried and bothered about so many things that are not, not necessarily bad things. They could be good things. It's a good thing to serve guests. It's a good thing to practice hospitality. It's a good thing to care about having a nice meal for company. All those are good things. But she was missing the point. She could have been sitting there listening to Jesus because that's the most important thing. And she got caught up with the urgent things. Well, where are we gonna, how are we going to know that unless we go to the Word and find out what God says is ultimately important in life? Namely, knowing Him, growing in our relationship with Him, honoring Him. That's what's ultimately important. Everything else is secondary at best. And so we need the Word to enlighten our eyes to see reality that way. Or we'll just waste a lot of our lives. Verse 11. Back in Psalm 19. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them there is great reward. So here are two more benefits of the word of God. God's word warns us. For example, it warns us that pride goes before a fall. Or that envy is rottenness to the bones. Or that a root of bitterness always spreads and causes trouble and defiles many. And just many other warnings that are all graciously designed to spare us harm and danger that we would just go into if God's word didn't tell us, watch out for this, be careful about that, this is a problem, this is trouble, don't go there. And God's word, when kept brings great reward. Not just reading it, as important as that is, not just knowing it, as good as that is, but actually doing what it says. Psalm 119, verse 2 says, How blessed, truly happy, in the full sense of the word, are those who keep his testimonies. Not just know, keep. Or Jesus himself, John 13, 17. If you know these things, 
Blessed, truly happy, are you if you do them. So that's where the reward is. So, so far we've seen that God's word can restore our souls, make us wise, rejoice our hearts, enlighten our eyes, warn us of potential dangers, and bring us great reward. And as if that wasn't enough to encourage all of us to be digging into our Bibles, David calls attention to two other things. So verse 10. They, God's words, are more desirable than gold. Yes, <laughs> than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. How desirable are God's words? David says, more than a lot of fine gold. That's true both literally as well as symbolically of having a lot of money. I love the story of Michael Ferris, who wanted to encourage his two daughters to spend daily time in their Bibles. And so he offered to give them $100 if they went for the whole year without missing a day reading their Bibles. And I said, okay. So at the end of the year, 365 days in a row, they had done that, and so they each got 100 bucks. At the end of the second year, without missing one day, Dad got out the cash, and the girl said, Dad, you can keep your money. We can't imagine starting a day without the Bible. In other words, we have found for ourselves that God's word are more to be desired than gold or the money you can offer us. We don't need that. There's enough reward. There's enough blessing. There's enough joy. We found that ourselves. We don't need money to get us doing that. And not only are God's words desirable, they are enjoyable. They're sweeter than honey. They're not just boring but good for you, and I would say like eating vegetables, and I, I get hate from those kind of comments from the, the mothers, so I'll just say boring but good for you like warmed up leftovers, okay? Can we, can we go with that? Not just nourishing but bone dry like eating cereal without milk on it in the morning, but sweeter than honey. Psalm 119, verse 130, David says it again. Whoops, not 130, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Harvey Golden is a Jewish philosopher who lives in New York City. He tells a story about how when he was a kid, his mother called the children into the kitchen one day and she dripped some honey onto a copy of the scriptures. And then she told the kids to lick it and said, I want you to never forget this book is sweeter than honey. Well, that's one way to remember that verse. 
little messy. Made an impression on him. But a much better way would be to simply taste and see for yourself. Think of Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me the joy and the delight of my heart. So Jeremiah says, I took it in like somebody eating food. You don't just look at something on the plate. You take it in, make it your own. And when I did that for myself, I didn't just find boredom. I didn't find dryness. I didn't find, I didn't get anything out of that. I found joy. I found delight. And so David isn't scolding us, you should read your Bibles. He does not appeal to guilt or shame or duty. He appeals to something he assumes we will find enjoyable. No one's kid has ever said, do we have to eat dessert? I know I've never said that. You don't have to guilt your kids into eating something sweet. They already want to. They're very happy to eat something sweet. And so David is saying, who wouldn't want to enjoy the sweetness to be found in God's word? He doesn't have to resort to guilt and duty and shame and all the other ways we try to get each other to read the Bible. He says, don't you want joy? Don't you want sweetness? I'll tell you where to find it. It's right here. Dig in. Taste. Enjoy. Or as a brother said in Sunday school a while back, the Bible is a deep well of joy we can drink from every day. It's true. Well, maybe all this sounds completely foreign to you this morning. And one possible reason you don't see or experience the Bible the way Psalm 19 talks about the Bible is because you don't know the author of the Bible, capital A author. This is God's book. But the Lord has revealed how we can have a relationship with him. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, From childhood you have known the sacred writings, the word of God, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That's what Tom was talking about when he was up here. Salvation is being rescued from danger or harm, namely the judgment and wrath of God for our sins and being brought to a place of safety, having a relationship with him that begins now and lasts forever. That's salvation. And the scriptures are what shows us how that can take place. We don't figure that out on our own. We need the word of God to tell us it's about Jesus that's the only way this relationship with God gets restored. 
The Bible tells us our true condition before God. It tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No exceptions. Everybody in this room, everybody in this world has sinned against God, disobeyed, disrespected God, and falls short of giving him the glory that's due him as that great creator that he is. So we're all in the same boat, and that boat is sinking, and it warns us of the danger if we don't get this settled, namely, the wages of sin is death, which means separation from God forever because we've rejected his rightful authority. But the good news is that God in his love and his mercy and grace has provided a way for lost and ruined sinners like us to be forgiven and reconciled. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this is a trustworthy statement worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. So we could not rescue ourselves. It wasn't, as Tom said, about balancing things out by our good deeds or our good intentions or anything else we could do was all about Jesus' death on the cross as a substitute for sinners. And if God is convicting you this morning, acknowledge you're a sinner who doesn't deserve anything from God except his judgment. Turn from your sinful rebellion and turn to Christ. Believe that the death of Christ is the only remedy that God has provided for sin. Believe he rose from the dead to show he's the only one that God has sent as Savior. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. It's the only way. It's the only way to God. For those trusting in Christ, David touches on some appropriate responses in the closing verses. So back in Psalm 19, he says, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. So first, acquit me or clear me of hidden faults. Dale Ralph Davis writes, Sin may be present, but we may not identify or perceive it. When David speaks of hidden faults, he does not mean they are hidden from other people, but from himself. There are wrongs that we simply have not detected they have not come up on our conscious radar. He also is concerned over willful sins. Hold back your servant from arrogant or presumptuous sins. Here David speaks of sins committed in pride and insolence. He wants preservation from deliberate sins. And then verse 14 is the beautiful ending. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So David is praying and we can pray that my thoughts and my words would be pleasing to God, not just fine with me, not just keep other people happy, which is what ought motivates us a lot of the time, but acceptable to God. That's what matters. Is God well pleased? And one more response, it's not specifically in Psalm 19, but maybe stirred up by it. 
And that would be to ask God to experience more of what we see in terms of the impact that his word can have on our lives. The goal this morning was not, you should feel like a terrible Christian and feel terribly guilty because you're not just like David when he wrote Psalm 19. That is not the goal. The goal is to say, doesn't that sound really good? Don't you want that? And I think deep down inside, we want that. We want to want that. We know that's where we want to be. There's a lot of things working against it, but that's where we want to be. And so let's ask. You have not because you ask not. If we have but little grace, it is not God who is lacking, said Matthew Henry. So let's ask. Let's ask that our souls would be restored and revived when we open his word. Let's keep asking that our hearts would rejoice more often when we read our Bibles. It doesn't happen every time. I don't know anybody that just every time, boom, my heart's just rejoicing because I read the Bible today. But at least more often than it does, let's ask. Let's pray that our eyes would be enlightened and that we would gain the wisdom we need as we study the scriptures. Let's ask that we would actually taste more and more of the sweetness that is to be found in God's word. And that we would feel a strong, compelling desire for it because we really are convinced it's more valuable than gold and therefore worth making a priority. So those are things God has to do in us and for us. God is the one who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. So ask for the desire and the actual ability to be more like what Psalm 19 paints for us. I, I just think of, I remember getting an ad in the mail, and it was this beautiful steak on the grill, which is, that's my sweet spot. <laughs> and there's two ways I could have looked at that. I could have said, oh, man, I feel guilty. I don't have steak every day. But I think what the ad was doing is like, doesn't this make you hungry? And that's what I want for us this morning when we look at a Psalm 19 and when you look back at Psalm 19 maybe later this week or go big time and go 119 this week. It makes me hungry. I want to have more of that be true in my life. So let's pray. So, God, we're asking for that. All of us need it. All of us, at some level, want it. We can't make it happen by our own strength. Our good intentions and our willpower are going to let us down by tomorrow. And so we are asking for enabling grace to give us desires for your word. David prays, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. So incline our hearts, Lord. Give us the want to that is often lacking or cold. And then just, God, show us how to make more time built into our days to enjoy your word.
that we would not just know it's supposed to be enjoyable or that David thought it was enjoyable, but that we would actually experience it as enjoyable in our own hearts. So would you do that in us and for us? And I also pray again for any who are here who don't know you as the author of this book, don't know you as the creator and the redeemer that you are. Lord, would you open blind eyes, deaf ears, stone hearts, cause them to be born again through the enduring word of God. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.